0: Good afternoon ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon, thank you so much for coming. On Tuesday I attempted to look at the first of a succession of six objects, each of which is resistant to traditional bibliographical method. The task is partly that each of these objects is resistant in a different way. As some of you will remember from Tuesday evening, I'm trying to reflect on understanding the textual object in history. And part of the task, is not to come to the object with a predefined set of bibliographical protocols, but rather to leave the rule book aside and to interrogate the object by attending to it in all its pluriformity, in all its historical difficulty and difference, in all the ways that it makes its culturally instantiated meaning. In the first lecture, I looked at a fully engraved edition of Horace, made by John Pine, a book for which there is no letterpress. In my third lecture, I shall look at the efflorescence and dissemination of the image of the slave ship Brooks, trying to understand how a particular image at a particular moment in culture became an icon. This is, I believe, a bibliographical question as we try to understand how the object to be. So the premise of these lectures is that the true remit of bibliography is to ask ourselves the question again and again, how did this object come to be the way it is? How did this textual artifact come to be the way it is? Today I would like to look at the question of color production in the 18th century using as a launching pad a book on the fishes of the Indian Ocean. It is the case that Isaac Newton began to publish his discoveries about the nature of light and therefore of color in the philosophical transactions as early as the 1670s. And it seems to me that Newton's researches and their growing popularity marks a kind of liminus, a kind of threshold for us as people begin to think about color, not merely as a fugitive thing, although it certainly is that, but also as a category of science, as a way of knowing. We might say, in the loosest of terms, that Newton legitimates color as a category of human knowledge. It (coughs) is the case that after Newton's optics, a number of practitioners and theorists make a whole series of sallies, this is a very selective list, into developing a kind of Newtonian theory of color and how it obtains both in the natural world and how it obtains in the world of color production artificially. It also is worth bearing in mind the 18th century may be regarded as the great age of the natural historical color plate book. And yet, there is a kind of Linnaean paradox, if you will. For the more Carl Linnaeus says, don't pay attention to any changeable attributes of the organism, merely pay attention to unchanging structures. The more Linnaeus trumpets that clarion call for his taxonomical researches, the more collectors and indeed scientists want to know about the morphology of the organism in the field, they want colored birds. They want colored fishes. They want colored plants. And so in the wake of Linnaeus saying, no, nein, what happens? More and more color production is taking place in the century. We have uh, many men of great wisdom and learning making completely transparent pronouncements about how Newtonian light works in the world. I hope it makes some sense to you because it makes none to me. And, And once Newton comes along and publishes the optics in 1704, everything is perfect and we don't need to worry about color production ever again. Or do we? For example, here we see that the colorist got a little confused (laughs) and perhaps couldn't read, and even the very plan of developing a kind of Newtonian theory of color had to be somehow compromised because the right pigments weren't on hand to make the one true red, and so they're kind of two compromise reds. Hmm. Color production is always, always going to be subject to the vagaries of human practice. And this is one of the reasons why, despite the predominance of color plate books in the 18th century, bibliographers have run quickly away from color. This problem is hardly new. (laughs) For Pliny himself tells us that once you have pictures and they get copied, um, many things can happen and we're going to lose resemblance to the originals. Oh, but in Pliny's statement, we also learn that this is about a process of textual transmission. Enter the bibliographers. Because are bibliographers not in the business of trying to understand the transmission of texts? in the introduction of similitude and variation along the way? Uh Aha! And might bibliography not have something to offer despite its lack of experience, if you will? So even before Newton, people were trying to systematize color and pigment and nomenclature. And uh, I'll just give you a few examples here. Waller, of course, is quite well known and has become much celebrated of late. This, this is um, Bugert, uh, uh, a, uh, a, a book recently rediscovered in a library in Aix-en-Provence, 800 page Manuscript Color Dictionary. A remarkable, remarkable work of I think tremendous beauty even though the kind of systematizing here must have taken years to figure out. People obviously see this as a tremendous problem or they wouldn't be going to so much trouble. My favorite color dictionary is one from Paris in the mid 18th century, and the the uh, factor says, "And <laughs> by this blue, I mean the color of the sky in Paris on a perfect day in May." <laughs> Got it? <laughs> so if books contain color, and if some books are purchased primarily because of their color, and they cost so much because of their color, and they take so long to produce because of their color, people make them in the first place in order to be able to display their virtuosity and variety of na- the natural world through the coloring. How can we prescind, how can we ignore color production as a human activity that is part of the making of meaning in books in this particular case, in 18th century Europe. It seems to me that we must engage. And there are many people engaging with the question of color production already. I name just a few here. There are many art historians who have been working on this for a very long time. Historians of science, conservators, professional scientists, But if color production is part and parcel of textual transmission in natural history books, then shouldn't the bibliographers and book historians themselves become engaged? And if part of the aim of a new, more capacious bibliographical method is, in fact to be in productive conversation with the other object-oriented disciplines, art history, museum studies, archaeology, anthropology in some cases. How is it that we wouldn't willingly become part of this community? A number of people have approached this subject extremely productively by looking at manuals for the practice of color production and of studying the availability and making and vending and consumption of pigments. I shall avoid this subject entirely. (laughs) For I would like to do what I know a little about, which is to engage with books. To engage with natural history books, and this is the book that will be the launching pad, as it were, for our study. A book published in early 1719 on the uh, fishes crayfishes, and crabs of the Indian Ocean. Uh, Made by Louis Reynard, a very interesting chap about whom (coughs) we know very little. He was a bookseller. He had an engraving shop. He was a spy for King George in England, uh, which is probably a little bit too glorified term. He was really more like a news gatherer. He engaged in the English bond market. But we don't know very much about him. And this is one of two works for which he's most well known. The other is a kind of commercial atlas. Reynard himself is based in Amsterdam. And his book is remarkable. His book depicts the fishes of the Indian oceans <coughs> in all their splendid color. <coughs> Reynard knew that people, when they saw these fishes, that they would not believe what they saw. So he takes great care in the preface of his book to explain how he obtained the originals and where they came from. This is a translation of one of the letters. Since you desire to have for me the true story, they were drawn and colored as truthfully as the painter and the strength of the colors could permit, And this is the son of the longtime governor. And the story is basically that the governor of Ambon and the surrounding area, now Indonesia as it were, these are Dutchmen after all, the governor of the area has a number of agents and he says, I want you to get me fishes. I want you to bring me drawings and I want you to bring me fresh specimens because we should collect these. This is one of the great glories of this area, these very curious beings and we should catalog them somehow. And so Reynard is very careful to make sure that he has letters testimonial from the two chief sources, one from from fishes that were made for the first governor and one from Samuel Falors who made a second batch of fishes for a subsequent governor. And he says, I made these and I made them true. People didn't have the benefit of the Discovery Channel. (laughs) (laughs) No one living in Holland or England or Germany or France had ever seen reef fishes before. My favorite comment on the reception of Reynard's Poisson comes from a Frenchman who says, impossible. And I know it's impossible because God would never have drawn with so garish a crayon. <laughs> <laughs> this was shocking to people, truly shocking. It is the case that after Reynard died, a second edition was undertaken in 1754. Very fortunately, we know from surviving correspondence that the bookseller purchased 33 uncolored sets from the first edition and the plates, and had originally intended just to color those and sell them on, but he was persuaded by a local collector to produce a larger edition to supplement the sets that he had on hand. You see the bibliographical nightmare looming. And here we see again the second edition displaying the fishes of the Indian Ocean in all their color. It is not recorded that any exemplars were among the materials that were bought from Reynard's estate. But of course, they could have just used a copy that they thought was a good copy. The question becomes, how would you know what a good copy was? In the 1754 edition, it is the case that those uh, original letters, testimonial, are taken out. And instead, this challenge to the incredulity of the reader is put forward. It's our ignorance. It's our own ignorance that makes us doubt the veracity of what this is all about. Hmm, Hard to rise to that hard to refute that. It is the case that there is an extremely fine ichthyologist on the west coast of the United States in Washington State, Ted Peish, who has worked on this book, uh, and I am indebted to his researches. And the thing that he did that I never could have done was he has examined every rendering of every organism and made the following scientific judgment about their taxonomical reliability. This is so far beyond my ken. But he basically says 9% of the 460 illustrations bear no resemblance to reality and a surprisingly high number are not so bad at all. Interesting. It is the case as well that through some good old-fashioned bibliographical work, we can determine which copies from the second edition belong, of course, to the original Uh, pulls of the plates which were probably done in batches again anyway um, and which ones belong to the second ones because of the reasonably long interval between the first issue in 1719 although I think probably plates were still pulled over time and then the 54 issue. Most rare of all is the 1782 issue, with only six copies known to exist in the world. I humbly confess to you that I've only examined four of these. And uh, it was issued in parts, in both French and in Dutch, with ten plates per part. However, of the six copies, four of them stop at number 40. And two of them go on for all 100 plates. But suspiciously, methinks, those two do not have the accompanying letterpress descriptions in French and Dutch that were a kind of supplement to the original work because taxonomy has moved on. How are we to understand this third edition? Well, what would happen what would happen if we were to ask ourselves the question about color production How accurate was this book? And did it matter to these people? What was the purpose of this book? And is there consistency within editions, across editions? Maybe if we were very fortunate in relation to the original watercolor exemplars. How would we understand the notion of color production in this book? Well, one primitive way is to take the same camera under the exact same light at the exact same moment and try to take pictures of, uh, in libraries where more than one copy exists at the same time, so that you get in one frame both books. That's very cumbersome, but it can be done because they're big books. One of the things you notice when you compare 19 and 54 right away is that the letterpress is the same, and it would seem that Reynard printed many, many, many copies. I've never found any second edition that didn't have the prelims that are somewhat altered, but much of the prelims are identical to the first edition. So he obviously had plans for something much larger. But if in the same snap, This is one picture. If in the same picture with the same camera on the same day, there's one picture, you take both books and you start to compare 19 and 54, what's your judgment? What's your judgment? Is it accurate? Is it the same? How much difference counts as difference. <laughs> what's admissible and what's not for our eyes in the 21st century, for their eyes in the 18th century? And and how would we know? But we could certainly begin by doing something that bibliographers have done for a long time, which is a kind of, if you will, collation. But in this sense, a kind of visual collation of copies The structures are invariant, of course, because they're all made from the identical plates, but the colors change quite a bit. The colors change quite a bit. And so it becomes extremely important, it seems to me, to begin to think of these books as much more akin to manuscripts than to printed books, (laughs) because every one has the most hours of it from the human hand in the coloration and not in the production on the rolling press. So the biggest human investment, as it were, is in the coloring. And how are we to understand that as bibliographers charged with uncovering the human presences in every recorded text? We can do the same thing if we're very fortunate between 54 and 82, at least for the first half. And we can look at the same plates. How much variation is acceptable? I'll show you typical examples and not some of the howlers that crop up. But How do we calibrate this? How do we think about color as a category of knowing? Is the game worth the candle? What would we what are we doing bibliographically when we make these kinds of examinations? It also may help us to think about why that first edition is so brightly colored and what antecedents have inflected Reynard's practice. So one of them, of course, has to be Rumpf and his famous treatise on the crabs, which is, which is sell, uh, sold both uh, colored and uncolored for a very long time. And the colored copies are all the ones that I've seen Um, And I've been privileged to spend a lot of time in Holland looking at Dutch natural history books for this project. And and again and again, these books are magnificent. So clearly, Rumpf and his great reputation uh, must have had an, in his popularity, his commercial success, must have had a great effect on Reynard's own practice. And maybe even his thoughts about the viability of the market for a book that included not only crabs, but also crayfish and fishes of the very same region that the famous Rumpf came through. But Rumpf's book is a self-styled cabinet of curiosities. Interesting. And there are competing icons, as it were, in the book. One. the the treasures of the Indian oceans being laid before the virtuosi, the elders of the people, for their examination, that they might become more sagacious still. And also, the blind scholar in his study, worn out from his years of study, made blind from his time in Indonesia, having gotten a disease where the sunlight destroyed his eyes. And so we have (laughs) this kind of um, plentitude, this excess here, the riches of the Orient being brought home to Holland, and the ascetic Protestant scholar alone with himself his knowledge, the fruit of his labor. It's also the case that an extremely important commercial and aesthetic precedent that must be countenanced if we're going to think about Reynard's book is, of course, Miriam's Insects of Suriname and allied publications. Again, part of the colonial inheritance. And Look at the difference between seeing Miriam uncolored, because it was sold uncolored, and colored. It's sumptuous. It's certainly sumptuous. And you see here the plate mark. Bear that in mind. For there also exists a deposit of copies here and there, very rare, very high end that are the offset copies, no plate mark at all. Look at the difference. Do you see? The plate on the right was made from the left. And the plate on the right has a kind of luminosity that the one on the left cannot obtain to. (laughs) And, And this is part of the market for natural history as well, it seems to me because it's about the culture of <coughs> collecting and the culture of, of virtuosi. Enter another great natural historian, or uh, not great natural historian, Rumpf was one too, who cares deeply, deeply <coughs> about fidelity to the natural world and about the business of color production. I speak, of course, of the great English naturalist, Mark Catesby, and here we see volume two of the first edition of his great natural history of Carolina, Florida, and the Bahama Islands. And he says, illuminating natural history. Wouldn't that be a good title for a book, do you think? (laughs) Illuminating natural history so particularly essential to a perfect understanding of it. You've got to have the color. You must. It's ridiculous not to have it. And so if we compare Catesby's prospectus here, uncolored, to the actual book, you see the radical difference even in a bird that is itself primarily black and white. Of the prince particularly the greens used in the illumination of figures. I have principally a regard to those most resembling nature. (coughs) And he talks about the the ways that he tries to produce color in this book. And finally, he talks about the fish, which do not retain their colors when out of their element. I painted at different times, having a succession of them procured so that as the colors changed, he could keep going back to the fresh one and the fresh one and the fresh one. Much later on Captain Cook's second voyage, there will be a special chamber put put into place where native species that are caught can be put into fish tanks so that they can be drawn by the artists and then returned to the tanks and then drawn by the artists and returned to the tanks in order to make sure that that vibrancy of color was, was still present. I have looked at three principal fishes in Catesby. Uh, Here we see the angelfish, beautiful production. The parrotfish, um, you'll be pleased to know I won't tell you about either of these today because I've been working on hogfish. Um, And uh, here you see one of Catesby's original watercolors and this is uh, a Windsor. And this is the specimen. This is a hogfish. That's what it looks like. I think it's important for you to know. So. Here's, here's, let's just take a look at some, some copies and see what do we think about this question of color fidelity. Nobody was more scrupulous than Mark Catesby. He annoyed his subscribers endlessly because he took too long to produce his plates. Partly because he was hellbent on getting it right. See how right he got it and how right his successors got it. Hogfish one, hogfish two. These are the John Carter Brown. Here, here. Look at that variation. That doesn't seem very happy. (laughs) What about the difference between that and this? Natural History Museum in London. And here. See how different that is through here And the bodily copy? So also the case that Catesby goes international pretty quickly. Uh, and here we see the 1750 German edition, 1777. Oh, look at this in the Natural History Museum in London. Oops. <laughs> right? Yeah. So does this matter? As we collate, as we think about questions of fidelity, as we try to understand what color production means to the producers and the purchasers of these books, how are we we to understand these variations? And how would one control against them when all of these are colored against an exemplar? This is a scientific drawing of a hogfish made by a professional natural history illustrator named Val Kells. And this is her scientific drawing of the hogfish which she has published in a field guide, rather different. And we think about Thomas Jefferson's comment on Catesby and the Natural History of Virginia when he says, Good, good form. Way overcolored. Hmm. So, Catesby is not the only person to worry about this. This is a concern throughout the 18th century. So Reynard is giving testimonials, and his successor is saying, if you don't like the color in this, you're just ignorant. You don't understand how it really looks, even though they have never seen the real fishes either. <laughs> so, so here we have Albin, uh, Natural History of English Insects, and he says, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, artists have tried to outdo nature. And this is a charge again and again. This is precisely the charge that Jefferson is making against Catesby, justifiably or no. And you see, his palette is quite spare, if you will. So it is the case that Catesby had a protege. And that protege himself became an important natural uh, historian and illustrator. And let's look at Mr. Edwards. Ah, we see here that George Edwards himself was publishing books. And if we look in the Cambridge University Library, we see how careful, how meticulous he was. This mattered to him most. I have deposited this copy, and it has been corrected and re-corrected, and if anyone wants to know what it's supposed to look like, they should look here. But he goes still further, and he says, In etching these plates, I've used a special method because I knew that the ones that are going to be colored are going to come out differently. So I've had to etch them in such a way that the color comes out properly at the time. And this is my method. And he says, I'm not going to let anybody have any uncolored prints because after I die, somebody who's unscrupulous might color them up. And then that would ruin my work. Huh. And then he says, I've given such terms that if somebody does color them up, they have to get it right. (laughs) Which is a great trust in language, it seems to me. He needs to read Quine. Um, And then he he talks about um, the, the, the questions of his own plates and their own fidelity. So, so I've been trying to work with a number of people, conservators, scientists, because this is new territory for me, and I think in some ways new territory for most bibliographers. And um, Val Kells, <laughs> who, who illustrated the Field Guide to Coastal Fishes, among other things, of the United States, has, has been one of my aides. She, she herself gave me this picture and said, Michael, if you want to understand the problem, you need to understand that this is a rockfish, and that's a rockfish, and that's a rockfish, and that's a rockfish, and that's a rockfish. And, rock and in fact, they not only share the same common name, they all share the same genus and species. So now, where's your fidelity? <laughs> and what does that mean when you're trying to catalog natural history? Here's a pinfish just caught. And here's a (coughs) pinfish a few minutes after being caught. Now what happens if you start drawing it right when it's out of the water, ideal conditions, and by the time you've even got the outline done, it's changed. It's changed a lot. And what happens if you put that same pinfish in a bottle of spirits It doesn't look like anything. Um, Don't think of this when you have your dinner tonight. So here is Val Kells um, uh, producing a scientific illustration of a member of the tuna family. And here is another friend of mine who is a fish artist who has been called by the New York Times the Audubon of fish. Yes, it's true. Um, But here's that same fish by an artist, James Prosek. Do you recognize them as the same fish? Huh. So there are some problems. And George Edwards wasn't the only one who worried about this. So here's Moses Harris's English insects. And Harris is going to get it right. It's 1776. He knows how many people have gotten it (coughs) wrong, and he's obsessed to get it right. This might be quite like producing the perfect text of Virgil, or Horace, <laughs> or Shakespeare. You know, every textual critic thinks, I got it right. Well, he's going to get it right. He's going to solve the problem of color transmission. He's going to be super scientific. So he says, you know, I'm going I'm to list all the parts here and I'm going to make sure that I, I've got all the terms right and I've got all the colors right and i produce a guide. and i to produce a guide so everybody will know exactly what's what. And I'm going to name all the colors. It's going to be very scientific. It's going to be extremely systematic. And here, I can then give you my plates, because now we're okay. And then the next edition comes out, and now here's the color wheel that's in that edition. And there's, there's the, the plate five. Oh. <laughs> oh. Have we solved the problem? Have we taken the textual transmission problem away? No, methinks not. And then we see that the first one was actually painted by Harris. No claim made on the second one at all. (laughs) So now are we going to get into an authorial intention battle? How are we going to understand the problem of color transmission? Are we going to use the the same protocols we know for for, uh, uh, verbal transmission in texts? What happens when we compare these two plates side by each and say, are they the same or are they different? And how much variation do we think is permissible? And then there's yet another addition, 1786. And here's that color wheel. And now when we put the three of them together, what do we think? And now when we put the three of them together, What do we think? It's hard. It's hard to get it right. Again and again, it's difficult. So the only example that I've been able to find of visual exemplars actually used in the manufacturing process for hand coloring are late 19th century, but these exist at the American Museum of Natural History. So what about the board copyist? What about the availability of the palette? What about house practice? What about the passage of time? So if we go back to that 1782 copy, we're going to run into a problem because here here's the one at the biodiversity center in leiden and that's okay and it's got its description and all the rest and it's going to run out at 40 and here's here's all that wonderful accompanying material uh really bringing linnaeus into it and bringing advances in ichthyology to it what a clever idea and, and, then, and then we run into this problem in the Houghton Library at Harvard. A book that Harvard University doesn't even know is Reynard's Poisson because it doesn't have a title page that tells them it's Reynard's Poisson and, because it has this manuscript title page with no date. <coughs> and when we look at this, we see it's got a hundred <coughs> plates. It's got a hundred plates but that subscription in 1782 ran out at 40 fascicles, 40 plates. Hmm. And then we see that at the University of Utrecht, there's also a copy that has a hundred. And if we do the watermark analysis, surprise, it's all recycled 54, <laughs> right? because the project goes bust after 40. It's issued serially. And when we go back to the correspondence for the original transfer from the estate to the bookseller in 54, what do we know? We can put together the pieces carefully and we can know that well, five copies were given to Reynard's patron, the King, King George. There's five copies, one of them's in Windsor, one of them's in the BL. If you can find the other three for me, I'd be grateful. <laughs> it is the case that 25 copies, 25 copies were taken by Sir Hans Sloan to sell in London. How remarkable, and it is the case that 36 copies were transferred (coughs) over in 54. That means that Reynard and his brightly colored fishes only sold another 33 sets. Five and 25 and 33, (coughs) huh. Okay, so what are we to do? Well, it is the case that because Sir Hans Sloan bought 25 copies that he would then sell on to the other fellows of the Royal Society, Reynard wanted to garner his long-term patronage. And he sent him the watercolor exemplar. The watercolor exemplar is in the British Library with no no relation to the book, but it was obviously prized, prized, because it's in a gorgeous binding of the time. And when we look at that watercolor exemplar, we see the book from which Reynard made his book a book consisting of watercolors combined from two collections, one that belonged to the earlier governor of Ambon, and one that was made by Samuel Falor for the later governor. And as we do that, we can see not only Hans Sloan's notes, but also we can see Reynard's descriptions of the fish in French and his giving them the appropriate Dutch names. And we can see that he ran out of gas late in the day. (coughs) And we can see Reynard's notations here. He's beginning to break up this and use it to make the new book. Here's the exemplar. And here, from the British Library, is King George's copy and Joseph Banks' copy of the second edition, taken in one photograph, one picture. So we can compare the first copy, the first edition, one of the best copies, surely, because it went to the king, to Joseph Banks, who clearly would have wanted one of the best copies that he could obtain And we can compare that, here, 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 not only to each other, but to the exemplar. And we can begin to say how selections were made and what the fidelity of the reproduction, the commercial reproduction is to the original, which is a copy, of what was made before, so we can look here, and we can compare the watercolor original to George's copy here, and to Banks's copy, and then back to the original again, and so on. Here, page thirty-nine, he says, and here's the close-up of it, and now we can we can do this and see. And we can begin to calibrate. We don't explain anything. We don't demonstrate anything definitively. There are no certainties, no end game where we say, aha, now we have apprehended the color plate book and we know exactly how it works. We know the value and meaning of color production in the 18th century. That gift will be given to no one ever, it seems to me. It is the case that when this building was originally opened, in the first production of the new Bod, in 1946, the king came to the front door and broke the key. <laughs> Uh, somebody had to run inside from the back and open up the door for the king. Seems to me that there's no easy way to open this door. It seems to me that there's no simple answer, no nostrum that we can give. If we want to deepen our understanding If the business of bibliography is not merely about explanation, but is about building capacious understandings of objects in history. That means that we require a humility before those objects. As they make their meanings. As we attend to them carefully and try to let them Teach us <coughs> what questions we need to ask, what researches we need to do in the archive. There won't, methinks, ever be simple answers. But it is the case that over time, if we look closely enough, if we give ourselves generously and with humility over to the object in history, which after all is the business of bibliography, then over time it may change the way that we understand. It may alter the ways in which we see. Thank you. please to take questions, but not for